Welcome to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. According to the Centers for Disease Control, black mothers in the U.S. die at three to four times the rate of white mothers, one of the widest of all racial disparities in women's health. Black women are 22% more likely to die from heart disease than a white woman, 71% more likely to die from cervical cancer, and astonishingly, 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. In a national study of five medical complications that are the common causes of maternal death and injury, African-American women in the U.S. were two to three times more likely to die than white women who had the same condition. At a time when the pace of medical advances can be breathtaking, from genetic testing that can predict the likelihood of conditions to treatments that have never before been more effective in targeting cancer and other diseases, the rate of maternal deaths remains stubbornly high in the United States, about 14 for every 100,000 live births. Among 46 developed countries, the World Health Organization says only Serbia and the United States had maternal death rates that worsened between 1990 and 2015. The rate includes mothers who die of complications within six weeks of the end of pregnancy. African-American women also have the highest infant mortality rate of any group in the U.S. with nearly 7,000 infant deaths every year. These deaths are not simply due to poverty either. The maternal mortality trend holds true across education levels and socioeconomic status. It's a matter of poor obstetric practices in the U.S. combined with overt racism. Women are more likely to be dismissed for pain, for example, than are men, making us more likely also to die in the hospital from heart attacks. Our pain is treated as anxiety, stress, or complaining. And it's worse for all women of color, and black women fare the most severely. Serena Williams' well-published birth experience is a prime example. Inarguably one of the most powerful and recognized athletes in the world, let alone man or woman, her pain in birth was dismissed despite a known potentially life-threatening condition that she has that can manifest as pain after birth. Only by insisting adamantly that her pain be taken seriously were the blood clots in her lungs recognized and her life saved. According to the Centers for Disease Control, more than 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. Today, joining me on Natural MD Radio is a woman I am so proud to say is a student in my course, Herbal Medicine for Women, and who is not only shining a light on the problems facing women of color, especially black women giving birth in the United States, but she's making mighty inroads into changing the culture of birth that is causing this, both one mama at a time and in a very big organizational way. Izanadari is a certified professional midwife, family counselor, pursuing a PhD in organizational leadership, and the founding executor of Mamatotu Village, a perinatal family support organization in Washington, D.C. that has been successful in securing Medicaid managed care reimbursement for non-clinical perinatal support services. She brings more than 15 years of experience in youth development, reproductive and sexual health, program management and development, and curriculum design to the table. She's also designed a comprehensive curriculum for training perinatal health workers through a two-year workforce development program that builds upon a community health worker model. She's fiercely dedicated to women and believes that promoting health equity, the reduction of barriers in maternal and child health, 
begin to dissipate, giving rise to healthy individuals, healthy families, and healthy communities. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's amazing what you're doing. You know, when you first shared what you were doing with me, it just truly blew me out of the water. Your dedication, your commitment, you're a mama, you're working hard. I am so curious. You know, in 2011, I gave a keynote to the Mass Perinatal Society, and it was based on a 2010 Amnesty International report calling the rate of maternal mortality in the United States a human rights violation. Mm -hmm. Since then, the rate of maternal mortality for African-American women has only gotten worse. How did you get aware of the problem? What were you doing in your life when you said, wow, this is an issue? What got you woke to this? So some of this was happen chance through my own experience. When I was pregnant with my first child in college, I had to navigate the maternity care system as a young woman. I was 22 at the time and I was considered low income as many college students are. And when I approached the medical system, I went to a local clinic that was in the community in which I was living at the time. And their response to me without knowing me was was vastly different after they learned that I was a student in college and that I came from a privileged background. Their whole, just the way that they interacted with me from that point on was very different than what I observed when I walked into the door and also vastly different from what I observed from the other women who were in the clinic with me. So you were basically racially profiled as sort of like some what teenage black woman who was pregnant or some college woman who just, what, what do you think was the stereotype that was acting on you until they heard you were from a privileged background and a college student. The woman in the office when, um, you know, they have kind of like a questionnaire. And so she's asking questions and she's like, you know, you know, what's your highest level of education? And I'm like, I'm currently a student. And she was like, a student where? And so, you know, I was like at this university and she was like, oh, you'll be just fine. You know, and like her whole, the conversation shifted to, well, what are your goals? And like, what are you planning to do after college? And like, oh, this is a thing. You know, it wasn't, it was just her whole demeanor and her whole response to me completely shifted. Even though I I didn't know anything about being a pregnant woman, they gave me a book to read and I just kind of flipped through the book and I read the different types of providers and was like a midwife sounds like the type of person I would want to care for me. I didn't know anything about midwifery and outside of having navigated care beyond, you know, just basic, your basic reproductive care as a teenager, I didn't really have any much interfacement other than that. So it wasn't until um, I switched providers and went with the midwives at one of the hospital, it was a hospital-based midwifery practice that, you know, I kind of dug into everything and was well-informed and attended childbirth classes and, you know, just kind of did all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. And, you know, I did, I had, I had great birth experiences, you know, with all of my children, but that didn't really propel me on a path. It was just like, that was a very interesting experience. And then it wasn't until my friend, so my friend had a baby before I did. And that 
you know, I, that was like, oh, I want a baby too. This was so beautiful. <laughs> then, <laughs> then, you know, and then I had a baby and, you know, it's still like still in, there was not really a shift at that point. But at some point when my son was about a year old, that same friend was like, you know, we should be doulas. And I was like, well, what's a doula? That sounds cool. <laughs> and I applied for this scholarship through, I think it was the, I cannot remember the name of the organization, but they were providing scholarships for women of color. And so I took a childbirth class. I took a doula training. And, you know, that started to provide me more awareness about birth. I didn't practice as a doula. I didn't have time. I was working a full-time job at that point in, in my work within a community-based aid service organization that catered to Black people in Philadelphia. So I worked there. I developed programs around like reproductive health, uh, young girls in middle school, which I enjoyed. And I started graduate school. And it wasn't until after my second child. So I initially was seeking out midwifery care. So it was very intentional at that point. I was like, I know I'm going to give birth with midwives. Planned on having a home birth, but things kind of, for a variety of reasons, switched in between. Um, I ended up going with the birth center. And it wasn't necessarily in my neighborhood, but I was living in D.C. at the time. And then my third child, so after my second baby, I was like, I want to be a midwife. Like, I'm, I need to find an exit strategy on how to become a midwife because mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't want to mm-hmm. work. You know, just even though I was developing programs and working in a nonprofit field, I just was not thrilled about helping somebody else create something and investing so much time in building up something that wasn't my own. And I wasn't, I was excited about it, but I wasn't passionate about it. So I, luckily my job, I mean, not luckily because it's bad, but they lost funding for their program. It was during the time when, uh, right at the beginning of the financial crisis and you know, they offered me another position. I was like, no, thank you. And so I was like, this is my out. (laughs) This is my exit strategy. So I left there and started doing doula work and teaching childbirth classes. A year later, enrolled in midwifery school. And, you know, there's things kind of spiraled in that direction from that point. And then my third child, you know, she was planned unassisted birth at home. Oh, fast baby. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was a very fast, like two and a half hours. But um, it was it was very intentional. You know, I approached that birth from a place of knowing, from a place of having midwife other women and supported other women and just felt I'm like, this is the only place I should be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was a very conscious and intentional and planned decision. But, you know, it was through all of those experiences that Mama Toto evolved out of my own life experiences, witnessing the experiences or hearing stories of other women, some of which were not my own, but understanding and empathizing with their experience and seeing that the doula training that I received was not adequate enough for me to be able to serve in the way that I wanted to serve. Like I had to do so much more to feel like I could get to a place of competency and skill. What did you feel like some of the gaps were for you? What were some of the things that you needed to do that the doula training didn't quite get you there? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the design of doula training in general. I think that this is my own opinion, but I think that it's very focused on quantity over quality. 
and that's not everyone's approach, but I think that two days or three days is not enough to be competent in anything, really. I think it's a nice, it's like an intro. I think it introduces you to the concept of being a labor support person. I think it opens your, you know, it brings a level of awareness, but then you have to do so much more to obtain skill, to deepen your knowledge. And then if you want to serve in the communities in which we serve in, there's a whole, like you're going to really have to go overhaul on your training to understand how to be a home visitor and understanding what does it look like to work in a community-based setting and trauma-informed care and culturally specific care delivery and humility and the care that you're given. And then going deeper into understanding the pieces around public health, the social determinant side or structural determinant, depending on how that conversation is being framed, and the intersectionality of those things and how they directly impact perinatal health like that is nowhere near covered or touched on in a doula training and so it really motivated me and my co-founder to create something different that really addressed and spoke to those needs so let's just talk about the importance of doula training i know the original work on having doulas at births started in the 70s, actually, with Kennel and Klaus and their awareness that in Central America, I think they did their work in Guatemala originally, just having a woman at your birth, even if she's an unskilled birth provider, just a support person, can dramatically reduce the incidence of birth interventions, Mm -hmm. everything from epidurals to cesarean sections. And that data has continued to validate those original findings. So we're talking about today, I mean, all women going Mm -hmm. into a birth in the United States in a hospital are at risk of a whole host of interventions that were sold a bill of goods that are for our own good, but often actually have much worse outcomes than we're informed about and are at least half the time unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And something's happening with women of color, particularly African-American women, how does the presence of a doula become even perhaps more important and having this cultural understanding become even more important in changing the birth landscape and changing this maternal mortality rate? I think that, I think I want to reframe your question, but I think having, Mm -hmm. I think the presence of a skilled and knowledgeable support person who knows how to negotiate the relationship between the mother and the provider is beneficial because of what we're seeing because of those pieces of structural racism that manifests itself in our healthcare system. So much like my own story and much to to what you mentioned earlier, that even when you account for economics, that Black women are still having the same outcome across income spectrum. And so it's having that person in the room that knows what questions to ask. So I think it's not enough for black women just to have someone present. You can have someone in the room and they don't even know what to say. And even though they may ask for someone to come help or assist you, they don't really know what to say to get the doctors or the nurse or whoever that is to intervene in a way that's going to be meaningful. And that could sometimes be the thing that actually saves your life. Yeah. So let's talk about some examples. I was just with a friend who is not a woman of color. She was giving birth 
long into her labor, she chose to have an epidural. And within about 15 minutes of the epidural, she just became extremely weak, felt really sick. I took one look at her. I mean, I'm an MD and a midwife with 37 years experience. It was pretty obvious something was wrong and her blood pressure was tanking. But had I not been in the room and gone to the nurses and said, get the doctor, we need to get fluids on board, she may have been left alone and she could have been dismissed and her blood pressure was severely low. What kind of things do you see specifically happening in like Serena Williams case, right? She said, I'm having pain. I'm not feeling right. And she was told that she was just uncomfortable or anxious after the birth. What are some of the things that you're seeing that are sort of these pivotal, potentially life and death things? And what are some of the things that can be done to to really make that difference? Yeah. So some of the things that we're seeing amongst the population. So, and, and I think it's important for me to mention that we don't serve a low risk population at Mama Toto. So our clients are generally high acuity when they walk into the door and that's for both health and social factors. And so things that are constant is, and this is not in every system, so some are easier to navigate than others, but things that we see um, are women not feeling that they're being respected when they walk into spaces. And this was from having listening sessions with our clients about how they feel as they navigate care. Not feeling validated, things that you've mentioned before, um, when they bring up concerns, not feeling that they have enough time to spend with their provider to even engage in questions. Feeling as if they get dropped after they have the baby so there's no continuity on the postpartum side when they feel like they have so many questions or needs. And when we have seen where complications are the highest in the postpartum period, especially in that first two weeks, we've had several situations near misses where if a worker had not known the questions to ask and known to intervene, that that mother most likely would have a transition. So, for example, we had a client who was attempting a VBAC, and that's a vaginal birth after cesarean for the who are listening and not familiar with the jargon. But, you know, she, the mother started to complain of having pain. And so, you know, we were already privy and aware that, you know, this was definitely a trial of labor and it could go either way. But the mother wanted to try. She was cleared to try. And so we were supporting that decision. And so when the mother started to complain, the response from the staff was like, this is just your contraction. You know, maybe you should consider getting an epidural. And the mother was like, no, this is not like what I'm feeling. I've never felt this before. And it was her worker who went out, you know, and like she had had two or three providers that come in, checked on her and it was just like, you're fine. But it was, it was a worker who was like somebody else needs to come in here. So she went to get the person who was in charge to come into the room, assess the situation. And they were quickly like, no, we need to get her back. And she ended up having an emergency cesarean because she was in the process of rupturing, um, having a uterine rupture. And so had the worker not been persistent over, it was a span of time too. It wasn't like five or 10 minutes, but it was the persistence of the worker that kept pressure enough to be like, no, you're not the right person to come in a room. We need somebody else to come in and assess the situation that that could have quickly turned, you know, turned to be a very different outcome than us having this mom who's here and alive and having a baby who's well. Yeah. And what you're saying is so 
powerfully important. And I was talking with a woman today who runs a large uh, doula training program and educational service. And I was saying to her how when I've been to hospital births, I'm able to navigate and negotiate. Mm -hmm. But I'm not someone who's afraid to say, hey, I think we need to think about things differently. But the reality is I do have an MD and I'm certified, trained in obstetrics, and I've been a midwife. So for me, it's like I can go in there as a confident colleague mm -hmm. and say, you know, mm -mm, this is not a category three heart tone. We don't need an emergency C-section right now. Or, you know, the monitor's off the mom right now. It's not that she needs an internal fetal monitor. We just need to adjust the external monitor or any number of things. And I think that there's like two ways of doulas serving in the culture right now. And one way is to go in there and make birth nicer and put cold compresses on people and give people ice chips, but not say anything. But that's not really going to change the culture of how birth is happening. And so I really agree with you. This extra level of doula training is critically important to change birth culture in general. And especially in a community where women are historically dismissed and ignored, and particularly around pain, right? I mean, this is a big cultural issue of women of color being dismissed, particularly around pain. And you've got a situation that inherently evolves pain. It just seems like a disaster waiting to happen. So I'm just so honored that you have doulas that you're training that are willing to not just act as, you know, comfort people, but actually truly as birth advocates. And that's a huge piece. Yeah, we, we train them as perinatal health workers. So it's a seven month classroom training coupled with an additional 13, is it 13 months? Yes, an additional 13 months or 14 months. So it's a two-year training total for the actual worker on our end. And so they're working more in the capacity of a community health worker with that perinatal training. And those pieces that you're talking about around like what is the language of the system and what you are working in, that's what they get during that course. In addition to the field experience that they receive, that really allows them to continue to build that vocabulary. But that is an inherent part of the work that we do. Like they have to be able to speak to the systems in which they are working in and navigating. And, and it's why we don't do doula training, because it, has, as in, it doesn't meet the needs of the community that we're targeting. So are you working toward getting this to be a nationally recognized certification designation? We are working to have our model evaluated this year. We actually recently applied for a grant um, partnered with one of the local universities here to be able to have our model listed as an evidence-based model. And so, yes, that is something we are actively working on, and hopefully that will be done over the next year or two. Amazing. But we, we see this as we have this slogan that we use that the women who serve are the women who are served. And so a part of our model is not just providing services to the community, but also building economics within the populations in which we're serving. So it's heavily community development as well. And we always reserve at least half of the spots in our training for women who already went through our program, because we see the community as the greatest asset and resource. And honestly, we see them as being more knowledgeable about what it is that they need. So we're constantly bringing the community to the table, not just as an onlooker, 
but as an active participant in co-creating what success is going to look like and what wellness is going to look like for that community across a three generation perspective, you know, so we don't, we don't just look at the mom and baby diet. We're looking at like, what, how can we transform the health of this entire family, a generation prior? So grandma, who still sometimes is actively involved in the care of the child and is also involved in influencing health literacy for that family. And then what is that going to look like for the generation after, right? So it's, the looking forward and the looking back. And that's how we approach our work. That's our theory of change. That if we can transform the health across generations, that we can then start to see well-being for not just for the family, but the family then creates the community. It's so powerful and so beautiful. So you shared with me when we had a previous phone conversation that a major hospital in DC, where you are working, that served most of this higher risk community closed. And this is a phenomenon that's happening all over the United States. Louisiana, which has the highest maternal mortality rate in the country, and Georgia, with the second highest, have Louisiana, I actually looked up the statistics, Louisiana, 28 out of 64 counties have no obstetrics care. And in Georgia, 79 out of 159 counties have no OB-GYN services, and nine of those counties have no MD at all. So this is just a huge problem, and you are facing it front and center. Can you talk more about what's happened and what some of the ramifications have been? Yeah, so the, I think that what's happened is still in question. So one, one of the hospitals, there were actually two hospitals that closed, and it would it happened simultaneously. So one of them closed due to concerns about practices and pro like delivery of protocols that were breached and the impact that that had on obstetrical outcomes. So there were three cases or three scenarios. I know one in which resulted in the death of a mother and a baby that the department or DC Health actually issued for that hospital to close. So that was, you know, that was on the city saying you can no longer provide obstetric care until you resolve said issues. And the hospital made a decision that they were not, you know, that obstetrics was going to close, you know, indefinitely. The other hospital from, this is from my understanding, it was more abrupt that it actually, like people weren't privy to this information prior. And so it just came as a surprise when they just issued to their staff, like, hey, we're shutting down in 30 days. Obstetrics shut down first. And the whole hospital now has shut down. So even like ER, everything. So they're not, it's not a functioning facility anymore. And it's being transformed into something called a health village, which I'm still unclear actually what that is or what that means. And I can only speculate that, you know, it is paralleling the racial dislocation that's also happening in the district that's vastly affecting the Black people who lived here for several generations. And so the closure of those two obstetrical units together and then compounded now with the complete closure of one of the hospitals who primarily served the Medicaid population and specifically the Black and Latina community that in a good number of undocumented persons that 
it is now being absorbed by a few hospitals. So most of the clients now, most of the residents are trickling into like three hospitals. And then there's a couple other that are outliers that are not as easily accessible on public transportation. Like people go to those places as well, but they're not absorbing volume in the same way that the other ones are. So what, you know, what that looks like, it looks like a higher number of people in the ER that looks like difficulty scheduling prenatal visits or longer wait times for people to schedule prenatal care. It looks like hospitals constantly being on diversion. And so then we have a breakdown in continuity of care, which we all know lends itself to adverse outcomes. So for those of you who don't know what diversion is, it means you go to a hospital, but they're saying they're closed. They're not taking patients. You get sent somewhere else. Yes. So unless you're walking in with a baby, like actively coming out and they can't send you anywhere, they will then tell that person, you know, I'm sorry, even if I've been getting care from the providers there my whole pregnancy, you know, like either you can wait it out at home or you can go to another hospital. Which could be a distance away and hard to access. Which is often a distance away because there's only right now there are so east of the river in D.C. D.C. is segregated by wards. So wards seven and eight are the wards that are considered east of the river. And they are the wards with the highest concentration of black people. But in those wards, there's no place. There's no ambulatory OB providers at all. and so. People in those wards have to travel sometimes up to two hours to just get prenatal care. And if you, you know, if you called EMS, EMS may take you to a hospital in Maryland, which is a bordering state, before they take you to where you were receiving care, you know, in D.C., because it's the the hospital in Maryland may actually be closer. So the borders in in the district are very fluid at this point where people are going over to Maryland to seek care, depending on, you know, depending on location or depending on the value of the actual hospital. It's problematic. (laughs) Have you found any or been able to track any racial discrimination in the diversion process or is that just too undisclosed? And what comes to mind is when I was first studying midwifery, my midwives who trained me were women, they were black women in the African-American community serving that community primarily at that time. And we had one mama in the community who had to go to the hospital for her birth. And when she showed up in labor, she was told that she didn't have insurance, so she couldn't be taken by this hospital. And she actually ended up with a uterine rupture. She lived, she lost the baby But that case actually changed the policies where hospitals could no longer decline you or deny you care if you didn't have insurance. But it sounds like, in some ways, a different version of the same thing is happening. You know what I mean? A sort of legal version of the same thing is happening. Well, I don't, again, I can't really speak to that because I haven't heard that. Like, I've also known white moms to be turned away. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it doesn't seem like discriminatory. It just seems like a bad situation for everyone. It just seems like a bad situation for everyone and providers, you know, who are really trying to do their best under the conditions that they're presented with. Cause it's not like they created the conditions either, but they're also, you know, providers are also trying to manage and navigate and, you know, they're, 
equally being impacted by the surge of people in the hospital. You had mentioned to me when we chatted some time back that there were pediatricians who were now attending deliveries, feeling overwhelmed and not knowing how to handle complications and so forth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. It's it's just, it's not a good situation for anybody. I think that, you know, I think that the city has to prioritize a solution that's going to work and a solution that's expedient. The other part of this conversation, you know, and and it has to be, you know, the, the conversation around race has to be brought up or really racism has to be brought up because the reality is that east of the river, the community that I was speaking about before, you know, the, this community experiences the greatest disparity in compared to the other wards, right? And so there's the highest rate of preterm births and the highest rate of poverty, the highest rate of single parenting homes. And then there's also when we look at what are those structural pieces, these communities also have limited access to food security. So there's, in Ward 7, there's two grocery stores in the whole entire ward, right? And so there's like one very close to where my office is located. And then there's another one that's a little further up. And then in Ward 8, it's the same thing where they have one or two grocery stores in a whole entire, and some people even to get to the grocery store on public transit That's not, I can't walk to the grocery store, you know, depending on where you live in those communities. And so what isn't walkable distance is the corner store or the liquor store, right? Oh, yeah. I had patients in my previous clinic outside of Boston. It was a a very sort of similar demographic. And people were literally getting their grocery store at the, basically at the gas station, Gross, you know, it's not a grocery store. I don't know what to call it. The gas station convenience store. That's what people were feeding their families. On. Yes. And DC also has a high rate of homelessness amongst families, right? And so within our population that we're serving, homelessness. And so for us, we're quantifying homelessness. It's sheltered and unsheltered because that number, the sheltered people may not get counted as homeless. So they're like, we have a place to live. And it's like, actually, my place isn't stable. I live with a friend or I sleep on someone's floor or couch which is a common phenomenon when people are homeless and sheltered. And so we see the complexities of social determinants that, you know, when you have a dynamic where when hospital access becomes limited, it compounds and magnifies the things that were already problems and and the things that were already existing within those communities. So, you know, the situation is dire, you know, And yes, you know, yes, black women die at a higher rate than white women in the district. And that's for a variety of reasons. But it's also, you know, D.C. is not that small compared to D.C. is very small when you compare D.C. to Virginia or Maryland. So, you know, five maternal deaths is going to look like an astronomically larger number. But I think what's bigger is when we think about those deaths of those women who have died in context of the impact of racism over their life force and all of those mitigating factors. You're a busy mom and you've got three kids Mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes it can be the the level of problems that our culture is facing, that our society is facing, that your community specifically is facing and, and your community is our, all of our community. We can't 
say anyone's problems or someone else's problems, right? Every problem affects everyone and we all have to be mm-hmm. kind of putting our oars in, but it can be really overwhelming. And, you know, the level of social structure problems you're talking about is just enormous. So how did you decide where to put your focus and how do you kind of navigate this multi-level just sort of beast of problems <laughs> and and pick what to do every day and and you know where to chip away at yeah i think you know i always say we found our lane and we're staying in that lane and sometimes you know i think when you know people who i say like those of us whose heart bleeds and, you know, we see injustice and we want to try to solve every problem. You know, we we really looked at, you know, where can we make the greatest impact? Where do our skills lie? And how do you, you know, for me, I was like, how do I pull people in who have skills that can help me grow and magnify this? You know, but for us, we, you know, when a woman comes into our program, we have a worker to address each specific thing, right? And so all of the workers are called perinatal health workers. And inside of that, there's a perinatal community health worker, a family support worker, a health and wellness specialist, lactation, IBCOC. And so all of these people come together to form a care team. And we wrap around this mother in conjunction with her provider and whatever other system she's plugged into and her insurer, you know, which is a very different relationship than, you know, than some people have existing in their model. And we try to create a care plan that's going to best suit this mom. And this care plan is not just looking at addressing the episode of pregnancy, but what are all the other things that are going on in her life that impact her ability to be well? So we look at housing and we look at her stress levels. We look at mental health, spiritual health, financial security, education, her relationship with herself and her children and her mother. And we try to put this whole dynamic together and touch the pieces that we can actually do something about. And sometimes that means we got to collaborate with other people because that's not in our lane. And so, you know, when, when that woman comes in, we co-create that plan with her and try to identify what are her priorities. We help organize those priorities in a way that is realistic, you know, using smart goals. So goals that are specific, that we can measure, that we can say, you know, we've, we've done this and here was the outcome of that. And we, you know, we walk with her along this journey and we have a, a stratification tool that we use at point of entry that's based on the Association of Family Physicians, they have a care coordination tool. And so we've modified their tools to fit our program. And based on that, you know, when a woman walks in the door, we say, you know, you're a tier five, six, four, you know, and we look at what are her health issues and or what are her social issues. And then that determines the care plan from that point. And so we walk that journey with her, whether that journey is six months or whether that journey is a year, whether it's a year and a half. You know, we tried to have her be in a better place and position than when she walked in the door and try to have stability for herself and her family. And then, you know, if if she is interested, you know, creating an opportunity for her to then come back and serve and be a part of the solution and improving the well-being of her community. So this is just so beyond anything that exists. It's incredibly brilliant. When you told me about the program when we first spoke, I just felt like 
truly, I just felt cracked wide open by the magnitude of what you're doing. It's just, I mean, it's just so spectacular. And I'd love for, you are welcome. I mean, sister, you are like, you are creating a program in my worldview. And I've been doing this work for a long time, something that I haven't seen before, but is one of the few things that I have encountered that really has the potential for global, systemic, cultural, human, you know, change and transformation. And I'd love for, if you, if you don't mind, for our listeners to hear, I mean, you're doing some pretty extraordinary things. This includes, so you know, just like getting a little bit granular, some of the things you shared with me, massages for moms during their pregnancy trimesters, helping women understand how to grocery shop. You mentioned in, uh, quite a few overnight postpartum visits. And for women who aren't listening, for those of you who aren't aren't listening, I mean, these are just not only transformative in terms of the kinds of services that very few women are getting anywhere, but can actually make or break everything from developing preeclampsia during pregnancy to child abuse after Mm -hmm. and neglect. So can you share, because I, I think just hearing the magnitude of what you're doing, even what one mom might experience when she comes to you, can you share what that, let's look at the sort of prenatal and postpartum period. Yeah, the, the scope of care. Mm-hmm. The services, yeah. yeah. So, so I'll kind of take you through. Mom comes in, however she is referred to us. We complete an orientation. You know, our program is voluntary. And then we, you know, in, in that first meeting also was about really establishing rapport and helping her to understand like what we're committing to doing in supporting her, but what her responsibility is as a co-creator in this process. And if she has kids, she brings if she has her, children. what kind of like, what's the setting? What, what's the sort of like space like? What is this experience like? Yeah, so she can either come to our space, which our our location is in a house, and that was very intentional. We wanted people to feel like when they came in the door that they were coming to a home, that they felt welcomed and they felt warm, that they felt safe. And some of our visits, a lot of our visits take place in the community, in the home of the client. And so when that initial visit is being set up, we let her decide, does she want to come to us or should we come to her? Because we want to accommodate, like we center the family. So whatever is going to be easiest for them to get to the program, we don't want transportation to be a barrier. So we find out from them what makes the most sense. And so in that initial meeting, she's oriented to the program. And then we complete a longer assessment where we are looking at we're looking at a variety of domains. So we are gathering information about her previous pregnancy and her relationship with her partner and her relationship with her mother, because that will then in turn allow us a more generational perspective on parenting and beliefs about parenting and things that we may need to work on with her around sometimes how to parent and also whether or not you know we need to connect her to mental health services to address traumas that may have come out of childhood adverse childhood experiences. We look at uh, whether or not she's engaged with other services so we know how to coordinate there. We ask her how she likes to receive health information so that we can tailor her learning to her needs. What her career goals are, we ask her about 
birth control and if that's something she wants or doesn't want and, you know, what information, what she's done in the past, what's worked for her, what hasn't. And um, we asked her about nutrition and stress. So there's a, a lifestyle component where we're looking at substance use or abuse. We look at how much sleep she's getting, um, her eating habits, does she have access to the things to make healthy food choices? And then that tool is used by her care team to then understand, you know, as a starting point, like this is what's going on. Like here's a snapshot of your client, but we always tell our team, you know, just because you have this paper, you don't know this woman until she shares her own story. So don't let that be a barrier to building rapport when you meet her. And so, and from that point, she's assigned her care team based on that tier structure. And so prenatally, let's say a woman comes in in the prenatal period, she is provided a range of visits. So generally each prenatal visit is education. And then it's also identifying and working through some needs that she may have. Um, workers also go to prenatal visits to, to, you know, let the provider know a lot of, we have relationships with a lot of the providers. So at this point they know us, but if mom brings up that maybe there was a concern about her health, maybe, you know, there, there's some condition that needs to be managed. We will go to the visit to actually hear like what instructions did the provider give you? And then how can we best help, you know, with adherence to this plan and then mitigate any barriers that may prevent her from doing that? So if she's given a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, you'll work specifically to help her access good food, know what to eat, et cetera. So she will then like, let's say a scenario, mom is diagnosed with gestational diabetes and she will then get paired with the health and wellness specialist who will work with her one-on-one and teach her. If she doesn't know how to cook, she will teach her how to cook in her own home or she can come to our space if she doesn't have a stable living environment. She will go to the grocery store with her. She will work with her on budgeting the money allotted for food that she has. And then we also provide supplemental food. So it's one of our, it's built into the program. Some of our moms, a good number of them experience food insecurity. So they run out of food, usually the second half of the month. And we try to supplement by giving them groceries, which is tied to them coming to we have this thing called Mama Mingles, which the first half of Mama Mingles is health and wellness, like group education. And then like, for example, this past week, they had a conversation around intentional eating and eating um, with your child, those of them who already had children, and how to lay down healthy eating habits for themselves, but also for the children that they already have. Um, and then provide them with recipes based on the things that they're receiving in their food bag. Um, and then the second half of the group is open for general discussion about anything that the mothers are interested in discussing that particular day. So other things that happen, let's just say a mom has a social need. Social need could be, I need to apply for social benefits. That's TANF, which is cash assistance, food stamps. Maybe she needs WIC. Maybe she's having challenge with getting her children to school consistently because she's very pregnant and that's a barrier. They will work with her on any of those things to help bring stability. And um, we also have a person who does more crisis intervention for people who have immediate needs when they walk in the door. And once they're stabilized, they get moved back down to their regular family support worker who also offers a life skills training. 
It's called Empower Her. So it's a curriculum that we developed that includes like a set of four parenting classes. And it's, it's around building awareness around normal child development, but also around empathetic parenting and then helping them think through how they were parented and how that could affect them as parents now. And then the other ones are basic life skills. So how to budget, resume building, preparing for a job interview, setting personal boundaries things of that nature is included in that curriculum. And then we have um, every mom receives education prenatally around anticipatory guidance for breastfeeding. And then she's also offered childbirth classes, so newborn care, which also includes safe sleep. She's provided with breastfeeding basics and then a standard childbirth education class. We also offer hypnobabies, which is a hypnosis for childbirth for people who want that option as well. And then moms who wanted labor support, the perinatal community health worker will attend her birth with her. We do 24-hour visits with all of our clients, and that's providing lactation support. And then they also receive a day three to four visit from lactation, a one-week postpartum visit from their PCHW, a visit in between there from lactation, and then the PCHW will see them at two, four, six, eight weeks. And then the family support worker who had previously put together a postpartum care plan, which we do prenatally for those moms who come in prenatal, around what her needs are postpartum. So moms who have pre-existing mental health issues, who have little to no social support system, or who've had complicated pregnancies or closely spaced pregnancies are often provided postpartum care. So that's going to either be daytime support for a four-hour block of time or overnight care, or sometimes it's an and, so they get both services. And so that's dispersed. We will allot those at at two-week intervals, and then we revisit you know, at that two-week time to see if mom needs the same frequency and consistency of care or do we modify that plan? You know, and you know, our goal obviously is to work ourselves out of a job to kind of wean her off. But during that time, it's not just attending to her need for respite, but we're also providing education and modeling for her. How do I transition? How do I care for this baby? Or if I'm going from one to two or two to three, how do I juggle this? How do I go out in public and manage breastfeeding and caring for, you know, other children? So it's, caring for her until she can care for herself and providing her that safety, that safety net that she may not have available to her. At two weeks, every single mother receives something called a postpartum depression screening skill, which is a tool that I find to be much better than the Edinburgh because it specifically looks at the domains of sleep disturbance, anxiety, guilt or shame, loss, suicide, And so, you know, it allows us to tailor our intervention more specifically to what is going on with the mom because not every mother is depressed. No, but actually, this is so powerful. I actually, when I teach pediatricians, I teach pediatricians that they're the ones who have to be screening moms for postpartum depression because Mm -hmm. they're going to see that they're going to see the mom with the baby most likely. Yeah, one week, two weeks. But most moms are not going in for postpartum care until six weeks. That's when the first insurance reimbursement is for a a normal postpartum visit. And so, you know, by six weeks, if you're struggling with postpartum depression, I mean, your risk is so high, your baby's risk is high, breastfeeding may be out the window by then. So this is such an important and critical piece that's missing in maternal health 
across the board. It's so beautiful that you're doing it. It's not, it's not even beautiful. It is critical. It's critical. This is like a huge thing for women across the board. There's a, a birth center here. It's Community of Hope. It used to be Family Health and Birth Center, but they've actually, and it's run by a woman named Ebony Marcel, who's a woman of color. And she, they actually have piloted doing a two week postpartum visit and they, you know, they do it in a form of group and they've actually had like success because even when we did our listening session, the women said, we asked them, you know, how do you feel about the postpartum care? And they, you know, all of them, not one woman in that group said that they liked attending visits at six weeks. They all said it would be great to have a two week visit. And, you know, those same results are being paralleled by her as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. When I was a midwife practicing home births, I did a one day, three day, seven day, 10 day, two week, four week, (laughs) six week. I mean, and then I'm on the phone with these mamas all the time. Speaking of which, okay, I've got several questions for you. One, how many mamas are you guys generally taking care of at one time? What's what's your general roster? Yeah. So at any given point, there's about 125 150 moms in our program. That's huge. And how is this all being reimbursed? Because obviously these mamas are not able to pay for all of these services. How are the financials handled? Yeah. So a huge part of the program is funded, which is, you know, the unique financial component to the model is that it's funded by our contract with Medicaid managed care organizations in the district, um, which allows the program to have a level of sustainability built into it. We also receive grant funding as well. And then we do have a small portion of women who are who are not Medicaid or even Medicaid eligible women that do pay for services, but their services look vastly different from that more robust program. But the Mother's Rising program, which is a home visiting program, is funded by Medicaid managed care contracts. And we currently have four of them. That's brilliant. We're hoping to to have more and then be able to work with private payers as well to work with those moms who really, we would consider them Medicaid eligible, but maybe because of their work or other factors, they are, you know, they have private insurance. But there's a group of women who constantly come seeking our services that would benefit from the entire more comprehensive program that are private insured clients. And all of your providers that you train, the community workers, this is all women? Yes, they're all women of color. And all of them have went through the perinatal health worker training. We do not hire out for people who do direct care or direct service for the clients, they have to go through that training first before they can work with the population that we work with. And then all of Mama Toto Village is women run, women directed, women owned, correct? And women yeah. of color, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. So I'm going to ask you a question that people ask me sometimes, <laughs> but now I feel compelled <laughs> to ask you, do you sleep? <laughs> you know the answer to that. <laughs> how are you managing as a mom? I know that women listening and especially, you know, I have a lot of women who are doulas and birth work who I'm sure want to do big things to make a difference. How are you literally day to day managing your life and managing kids? Because I know what this kind of work takes and it's 
formidable. Yeah, I'm probably not a good person to ask that question to. Because well, I always have family support. I know your husband's watching the kids while we're talking. You know, it's funny. I actually do not have a lot of family support outside of my husband. Don't. Um, so I'm we have, mm-hmm. you know, I have built, you know, it's interesting. Like Mama Toto for me has also become my village of having mm. sisters and having women who I trust and who, you know, we parallel lives we can help and support each other in that way that if someone needs a break, they know that they can call someone who will love on their children and care for their children, you know, why, why they take that break or I need to go to an interview somewhere. My husband is not available, you know, having those people to call on. I've had to create that family in that village for myself. Like that wasn't something that I was gifted in that way, or just, you know, just by virtue of, you know, I just, I don't, I don't have that extended family support like that. In terms of the how, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think that's just such a hard question. Cause I don't, I don't really know the answer to how I think it's just, I just do stuff and you're a time and try to make it all work together. But you know, yeah. one of the women who works at Mama Toto, I've, we've known each other for like over 10 years now. And she's like my therapist even though I'm like everybody else's therapist, but she, she really helps me stay grounded in making sure that I take care of my family. Right. And just keeping that as a priority. So learn from her, but I homeschool my children for all Mm -hmm. of the time until like the last year and a half, we put them in a school. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time with them at that point and that looks very different now, but what, you know, what we do is try to carve out, that evening time when they come home and weekend time and being present and available for them and having time for work, let work be work time and let my time for them be. Um, because, you know, as a therapist, I'm very keen on making sure my children don't end up on anyone's sofa. And I'm like, if you end up there, it's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think there's such a balance. We did the same thing. We, you know, my midwifery community and even my clients who I, you know, some of them were having babies when I was having Mm -hmm. babies became the extended community. So some of those women would be women who understood and I could call in a pinch because they became my friends and say, you know, Tracy's not here. I need to go to this birth. (laughs) My husband definitely compromised on career choices at times so that I could do the work that I was Mm -hmm. doing. And, you know, I think at some point, too, for us, it was that balance of uh, we homeschooled also. In fact, I homeschooled through my first two years of med school and then put the oldest two homeschooled until college and then the younger two into high school. And but one of the things that I think was important for us as a family was that balance and blend of serving our family and really being mm-hmm. present and then also setting that example for our kids of a life with mm-hmm. purpose mm-hmm. and that it does take time and it does take commitment and it does take a certain amount of sacrifice and you know I think that in the long run as I've watched them grow up they've become people who also identify with that sense of purpose and that's not for everybody no. and it's not you know, there's no value judgment in it, but for us, that was important. And I imagine it is for you as well. Yeah, definitely. See, like I see things in my children, you know, like my older son, cause he's, he's like been with me on this journey the longest. 
And I see it in my daughter too, because she spent a lot of time with me at birth and at the founding of Mama Toto, like she was always there and always present. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mm-hmm. they both have this spirit of the helper spirit, the spirit of wanting to give and to serve, you know, and, and really being, I think it's, I don't even know how to describe it, but when your children articulate how proud they are of the work that you do and being excited, you know, to see their mother accomplish things, I think it, it does is that suppress, I don't want to say it puts pressure, but in a way it does, you know, it sets this, yeah. know, it sets this expectation of like you can create your own path and your own purpose. It doesn't have to be traditional or even conventional, but yes. find find a way to have a life that's meaningful, but outside of things. And so I think that they, you know, they get an opportunity to see what that looks like up front, you know, having walked this journey with me. And, you know, my older son is so much, I think be, because I'm a therapist, you know, like, the language that they use to articulate their feelings. So they will say, you're not spending enough time with me right now. And this is what I need. You know, they can articulate that very well. That's great. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like I recognize, you know, sometimes it's like mom had a lot going on. This is what's happening. I don't talk to them like they're like, I talk to them in a way that I'm preparing them to be functional and well-adjusted adults. It's so important also recognizing age and stage of development but I'm like look this is what's going I apologize to my children when I'm wrong and I try to help them articulate what it is you know and they they have space to tell me in a way that's respectful obviously but you know they have space to say like you're not meeting my needs right now and you know and I think at, at that point the onus is on the parent to listen you know because to me like that's the point before we start to see an emotional reaction you know, it's like the mm-hmm. exactly behaviors that, that lend yeah. itself mm-hmm. to, I just need attention. Attention-seeking yeah. behavior is a more appropriate term. But, you know, I think for some of us as moms, before we find our purpose, we think that our children are our purpose. And I'm like, you know, I think our children are our teachers and our guides. But I don't believe that being a mother is our purpose. I think we consciously make a, de- well, not everyone, but we make a decision at some point to accept the role of mother and what that means. And then we have to find other things that add value, that add depth, because our children are going to grow up, right? And even though they'll always be our children, I feel like when when we don't find that purpose as mamas, when our children leave, you know, that's where we get empty nest syndrome and people just are like, I don't know what to do now. I have nothing. I don't have a purpose. So I think it's as mamas, finding that delicate balance between being mama and then finding what we need. Sometimes there were things like, oh, I used to love to do that. And I put that on the back burner when I became a mama. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at some point, it's moving it to the front slowly sometimes. But being okay with being a little bit selfish to pursue our goals, but not at the expense of our children's emotional well-being. Those are some strong words. It's really <laughs> powerful to hear you articulate that. And I'm just delighted. So let's just end with some thoughts about mamas who are 
dipping their toes into birth work or they're deep into birth work and they want to do something bigger in their community or they want to learn more about what you're doing and do that kind of work in their community. Any thoughts to share for women in that situation? Yeah. So I think for just starters, I think you have to find out, you know, really think about, I always say start at the end first, you know, so what do you want your end? What do you want that outcome to be? And work yourself back from that point to see if there's something that already exists so that you're not duplicating effort. If you are, you know, big on, I want to start something new, what makes you unique? What is it that you're doing that's different and that's filling a gap that somebody else is not currently fulfilling? Lots of professional development, I think, is important as you move from a place. Um, I'm writing my whole doctoral thesis on this, but <laughs> moving from passion to sustainability in our work, you know, passion is not enough to provide longevity. And so taking that fuel, that passion that you have for whether it's for birth work or whether it's a passion to, you know, work towards justice for women, whether that's reproductive justice, social justice, human rights, whatever your thing is, I think figuring out what are the steps that I'm going to need to take to make this sustainable. And that also means sustainable for yourself first, <laughs> financially sustainable, emotionally sustainable, and making sure that you build your village that you think through, especially for women who are becoming doulas or midwife, even starting your midwifery journey. You have to try to build your village first so that you have people. Because I know some people, we go through this in our training, women start the work and they're like, well, I haven't thought about childcare. And we're like, so who's going to watch your child when someone calls you at two at night? And they're like, wait, I haven't thought about that. I'm like, well, let's think about those things first. Yeah. So it's really think about the basics first. You know, that happened to me once. An apprentice called me. I called my apprentice, told her <laughs> we were on our way to, we got called to a birth. And she had no one to watch her children. She asked if my husband oh my could God. watch her kids. Plus my kids. I was like, no, this is a conversation stopper right now. Go figure this out. I think, yes. it, you know, getting involved in advocacy and policy work is so important to really dig deeper and make sure that you have language to articulate your passion. So there's a lot of organizations I know specifically for Black women that are wanting to get into this work, or even white women too, like Black Mamas Matter Alliance, they're a national organization that works on reproductive health issues for Black women. There is a Center for Reproductive Rights. Like there's a lot of organizations, Center for American Progress, who work on these larger issues that can be a resource. And We'll get a list from yeah. you and we'll put the list below so we can get... Just go to as many things as you can, you know, like I said, to start building. Building the connections is a critical part to success in anyone who wants to... And you, you guys are documenting outcomes, too. This is a huge thing to really be able to do. So you've had some pretty good outcomes already, and this is also part of the work that you're doing. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And part of the work that we want to do is also being able to help other people, people who want to start this kind of work, whether it's social justice work or social profit, like be able to have the fundamental tools because evaluation is not cheap, right? And not everyone has access. So some people are doing really great work, but they can't document it, you know, in, the, in a way that they can share it with other people. 
But for people who want, you know, are really interested in starting things out, like we're definitely interested in helping others be able to do that in the most efficient way possible. So one of the things that we're doing so listeners can know is that we in my small little world love to provide you guys information on supplements because so many of you ask me what supplements do I recommend? What supplements do I use? But we don't take a penny of any of the money that comes in from supplements. And so we've created an arm of our business called Dharma Moms, where if you purchase supplements, the difference between the price that the retailer sells us at and what you get it at, 100% of that goes to organizations that support protecting maternal health in the United States and in countries that need. And one of our big areas now is to focus on the needs of women of color in this country, because that really is where the highest need is in terms of transforming maternal mortality. So we're so pleased to be creating a relationship with Mama Toto Village. You know, we cannot take one cent of any light shining on us for what we're doing. We just really want to support because I know that you're hearing that this is really, you know, this is to me, this is like Nobel Prize level work. This is that. And I don't say those things lightly. And I've worked with Nobel Prize winners in my medical training. I mean, this is really a whole new level of maternal health care. So I cannot thank you enough for the work that you're doing in creating Mama Toto Village, the vision that you have. Those of you who are listening, if you purchase supplements from anywhere and you want to support what we're doing to support Mama Toto Village, just go over to my website at avivaram.com. Look at the tab that says more for you. The drop down is the replenish supplement store. Everything you go there, a substantial portion of that this year and ongoing, we hope to have a very long relationship with Mama Toto Village, will help support their work. But what are other ways that if women want to, listeners want to support you directly without doing that, can they do? Because I think there are going to be a lot of people who are just lit up by what you're doing. Yeah. So people can subscribe to our newsletter, which I'm actually going to start doing video. It's kind of like a video check-in, like once a month to keep people connected into what we're doing. People can always make monetary donations. People can provide things like tangibles that we provide to clients. So like gift cards to grocery stores, Costco, things like that, because we do go out and buy food and give that right back out to our clients. And so, you know, people can donate in whichever way they feel um, works for them, whether they become a monthly sustainer or they donate once a year, or like I said, they want to donate baby clothes or breast pumps. We generally use Spectra because they're easier to loan out. Any of those type of tangible items, like things that we use all the time to support moms, baby carriers, because we try to have people, those are easy, easier to use than using a stroller, especially on public transportation. So those are items that we go through frequently. Preemie clothes, we go through a lot as well. And what's the best way for folks to reach you? And we'll post this below the podcast as well. So on the website, so people can look us up on Facebook at Mama Toto Village. We're on Twitter at at Mama Toto Village. On the website, www.mama, so that's M-A-M-A-T-O-T-O village.org. 
they can reach us in any of those manners. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and what you're doing and for dedicating, I know, as much time and (laughs) blood, sweat and tears as you are to this. It's game changing. And I can only hope that in five years we're having a conversation again and this model is in every county, in every state in our country. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We're going to be looking out for what you're doing. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please let us know by leaving a comment and giving us a like over on iTunes or wherever you're listening from. And again, all the links to this episode are going to be below the show notes. So we hope you'll have a listen and share this with friends and follow some of the links and learn more. And if you're inspired and want to support Mama Toto Village, you can do it through direct donations, direct products, direct services to Mama Toto Village and also through the Replenish Supplement Store. See you next time on Natural MD Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.